show. The no make it show. Yeah, uh-huh. Clash momentarily for class solidarity. Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency. Greed from elites, oligarchs stay fed. Deep state, faith fed. Everybody break bread. Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion, and this melted pot. We live in time to build a new system. Unionize labor rights. Highlight the issue. Talking heads left is best. The saga continues. Continues. The No Miki Show. Hello and welcome to Nomi Key Show. It is a Thursday, May 27th, and Joe Biden has suddenly decided to shed his bipartisanism that's entrenched in his bones and his veins because, God forbid, Republicans uh, don't walk the walk when they're talking the talk back at home. Let's show this clip of Joe Biden sort of kind of maybe calling out his Republican friends. Even my Republican friends in Congress not a single one of them voted for the rescue plan. I'm not going to embarrass any one of them, but I have here a list <laughs> of how back in their districts they're bragging about the rescue plan. They touted the, re the restaurant revitalization fund. They touted the fact that we're in a situation where they're dealing with touted grants to community health care centers. Touted. I mean, some people have no shame. <laughs> Is this like the new neoliberal uh, way of doing things to appear to be more progressive, but then like not really do anything? It's not like he's the president. It's not like he could actually instead of instead of pulling a McCarthy. This is this is this is what he used to do. Is he'd have a you know a file full of names. Uh, why doesn't he actually name the names? Why doesn't he name his Republican friends that are at home touting the plan that they did not vote for? It reminds me a lot of what happened with Obamacare, but you know what happened with Obamacare? President Obama toured the country getting people on board with Obamacare and they still, still, they should have changed the name back from Obamacare, frankly, but that's, you know, great branding on the Republicans fault, uh, Republican side. I mean, this is this is ultimately the same issue. Obamacare is extraordinarily popular when it's not called Obamacare. <laughs> it's the idea, the actual program is popular. The person was not because the Republicans were running against Obamacare, but actually wouldn't cut it because that would make them lose their 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 positions. So, you know, what could possibly solve that is if uh, Joe Biden stopped acting like he needed to uh, be friends with the Republicans all day long. If Joe Biden, I don't know, maybe called out Joe Manchin for doing the same exact thing. I'm going to start calling Joe Manchin mini Joe because the two of them actually do have the same tactics, except Joe Biden doesn't want to look like he's holding up the Senate. He wants Joe Manchin to be the one who's holding up the Senate because Joe Manchin's so concerned with bipartisanship because somehow that's the solution to everything. It's not the solution to anything right now. I give credit to Joe Biden for uh, the biggest spending package at home specifically um, with the infrastructure plan, with, uh, it, you know, with these PPP, uh, the PPP plan, I give him credit because it is the most we have spent at home since World War II. I give him credit for that. But let's go all the way, Joe. Wouldn't it be amazing if we could have some transformative legislation that was not being held up by mini Joe? 
Minnie Joe, who's so focused on bipartisanship, bipartisanship doesn't, we don't need bipartisanship. You need bipartisanship when the Republicans are in control of the Senate, when Republicans are in control of Congress. Republicans are in control of the legislatures. You know what could solve that? If we got rid of the filibuster, if Joe, Big Joe, President Joe, called up Minnie Joe and said, you know what? The buck stops here. It's time for you and your little friend, Kirsten Cinema to actually act like Democrats because we're not going to be ha we're not going to be able to protect civil rights. We're not going to be able to deal with gerrymandering. We're not going to be able to win back legislatures. We're not going to be able to codify Roe v. Wade in 2021. Why are we even having this conversation? Oh, why? Because because Democrats have been obsessed with bipartisanship. Bipartisanship is only needed when you need to get a Republican on your side to win. But we don't. We need the Democrats on our side to win. We need Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema to win. So bipartisan Joe Biden, go all the way. Go all the way. Get your party to realize that we don't need the Republicans federally right now. That we need to get rid of the filibuster so that we can win back state legislatures where we are being crushed, where actually bipartisanship does matter because sometimes we have to get Republicans on our side to pass legislation in many of these states. So Joe Biden, Big Joe, go call Mini Joe and Kirsten Cinema, whatever her nickname is going to be, I'll come up with something. Uh, I feel very Trumpian right now. Go call them up and get them to act like Democrats because there's no need for bipartisanship when you win the Senate and the House and you have a Democratic president. There is no need for bipartisanship when you can get rid of the filibuster. There is no need for it anymore. It's a buff. It's a bluff, excuse me. It is a bluff. So if we want this transformative change that gets our country out of the sinking hole of despair that we are in right now, and we're not even aware of it fully yet, if we want to hold Republicans' feet to the fire, who are running around their districts claiming, isn't it great that we brought you uh, the pork home when actually they didn't, they didn't vote for it, then we have to actually start stepping up and doing this transformative work. And there are only a couple people in the way of that, but you know who could actually stop it? President Joe Biden, master of the Senate. All right, we have a wonderful show today. We have Dr. Jim Zaghi, who is on to talk about what is happening, what is the latest, where are we? With the ceasefire, where are we in the development uh, of, of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the Israeli bombardment of Palestine, of Gaza? Uh, we are going to talk about that with Dr. Jim Zogby. And later, we have Arun Chowdhury and the one and only Rep. Rab, straight out of Philadelphia. Uh, we should, we need a song for that segment. I feel like it's time. Yeah, we should outsource that. All right, we'll be right back with Dr. Zogby. Nomi Show. I am so excited about our first guest, Dr. James Ogby. Dr. Zogby, Dr. Z, uh, is the founder of the Arab American Institute. He is the managing director of Zogby Research Services. Also, so many other things. A fellow of the Sanders Institute, member of the DNC, former member of the executive committee of the DNC. I'm not even looking at the script now. I'm just going to start rolling off. Uh, so many, uh, a deputy uh, campaign manager for Jesse Jackson. Uh, what else am I missing here? We, there's there's a lot here. Uh, father father of five, grandfather five. of 13. 13, oh my goodness. You've got your hands full. Dr. Z, I miss you. 
Thank you, Namiki. I miss you too. Now that this pandemic's over, we're going to have to catch up in real life in person. Well, hopefully. Yes, but let's not say it's over. You're correct. You're right. You're right. I shouldn't say that. I'm I'm vaccinated, so for me. Under control. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So um, I, I would love to. Concerns. I still have concerns because I have a granddaughter who is uh, immune compromised, and uh, and therefore we what we don't know is if you're vaccinated, can you convey? Right. Uh, right. Can you transmit? And um, and so we're still we're still being cautious around here. Smart. Is your is your granddaughter vaccinated? Uh, yeah. she can't be. Um, she's uh, she's ten, um, and she had leukemia, and she still takes a kind of a, a low dose um, of uh, um, a chemo, and uh, she's doing fine. But uh, we don't want to we don't do yeah. anything to put her at risk, right? So, um, her brother and sister just got vaccinated, which is great. Uh, Fifteen right. and eighteen, so. We're getting better, but you know, I, I do think that um, that we. I didn't think we'd rush back this fast, yeah. and I still think caution's a little bit in order. Um, so yeah, I'm not. Uh, I guess I got a little agoraphobic in the whole process of being a year inside, and I'm I'm not ready to uh, to mingle yeah. quite so much. But Are I am you still I smoking am cigars. More, more importantly, okay. Yes. <laughs> All right, I'm in San Juan, Puerto Rico, so I'm gonna have to bring you back a cigar. Ah, uh, okay. You just have to tell me what kind you like. Last time I did that, <laughs> I didn't know anything about cigars. It was probably a horrible cigar. Okay, anyways, uh, now that we've gotten the chit chat out of the way, right, there right, is right. a very serious situation happening in the Mideast right now, and you were the first person I thought of to have on. We've done several um, panels now and conversations about uh, the state of affairs, but but you have been, I, I guess I want to break this into two parts. The first part is just the sea change and how the public, how Democrats have shifted uh, in discussing Palestine in particular um, in the last couple of years compared to, you know, compared with, you know, you were the first person to advocate in the DNC and, and the hostility that you faced even like two years ago uh, around this issue. And then the second part, just, you know, I, I would love to understand what's really happening. Like, is there, is the Biden administration going to do anything? So let's just start with the politics. Has it transformed enough to make a difference? What, I, where were yeah, we two years ago? Huge, huge, huge. huge. Look, I, look, let's go back. When I first came to Washington in 78, uh, there was a coalition called Coalition for New Foreign and Military Policy. Had all of the groups, SANE and all the anti-Vietnam and the various human rights groups around Central America and the Philippines and South Africa, solidarity groups, et cetera. And we applied to join with the Palestine Human Rights Campaign. It was a logical home for us. Uh, we won the vote for admission. It was like 58 to three. But the three groups who said no said that they would withdraw uh, if we were let in. Uh, because it would uh, uh, it would affect them. Uh, they were Jewish groups, and they said we don't want them in. Um, so I uh, I actually cried about it a bit because they asked me to withdraw the application, and I did. We tried again three years later, and the same thing happened again. Um, uh, this time we brought it to a public meeting, and they made their case. And uh, then in eighty. Three, Jackson asked me to be deputy campaign manager, and I did. And even then, um, 
Jewish groups came to him and said, if 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 you have Zogby, blah, blah, blah. And uh, I remember I said to him, I said, I said, I can't do this anymore. I'm just going to quit. And he sternly said to me, he said, if you quit, you give them what they want. What they fear most is that you'll stay and fight. And so I stayed and he fought for me and with me. Um, and in 88, I won a seat on the DNC. Um, and it was the year I raised the issue of mutual recognition, territorial compromise and self-determination, not really radical at the convention. We had a minority plank and Ron Brown came to me and he said, um, who was, who was Ron said, Brown for, for folks? He was chair of the party at the time and he'd been chair of the Jackson campaign. He came to me and he said, I think you want to step down from the DNC because he said, we're, we're getting intelligence that Republicans and Jewish groups are going to come after Dukakis if you're on the DNC. And so I was upset. It hurt. Um, and about it, I agreed to withdraw. He said, I'll make it up to you. And he did. He reappointed me to the DNC in 93, right before he was leaving to become Commerce Secretary. There was a vacancy. Um, and I've been on the DNC ever since, as you know. Um, now, uh, as late as uh, 2016, we were having the platform fight. I was negotiating with the very same person that I was negotiating with in 88, who told me back then, um, if the P words even in the platform, all hell's gonna break loose. Who we was get that? To, who was that? Just, uh, in, 2016, <laughs> in 2016, we're having the debate it was a little more respectful, right? I mean, it was not as hostile and whatever, um, and uh, we lost. But uh, think of where we are today, where you have a colloquy organized by Mark Pocan, and um, uh, you have dozen members of Congress saying incredibly smart things, and many others who couldn't be there sending letters. And and it, it what struck me was not just the um, the power of their statements, but it was Menendez and Schumer, who in their lives had never said a positive thing, uh, finding it necessary to temper their views and sort of do a both sides thing because they also feel the drift. I mean, they could feel the wind blowing in a different direction. Schumer doesn't want to get the primary, right? Uh, Schumer was the guy actually who argued against me from the podium in 2000, I'm sorry, in, in, in 1988, when I did the platform plank, said, the, the last speaker was the most dishonest, disingenuous, disgraceful, he went on with all the D words, and the boos were so loud from the floor, because Jackson had about 1,200 delegates, um, the chairman had to come out and pound the gavel, pound it in order, uh, but Schumer's singing a different tune. And, and not because he ever believed what he said before or even what he believes what he says now, but he's got his finger in the air and he knows which way the wind is blown. And that, I think, is what we found in the poll that we released today, was that uh, there clearly is a significant shift in public opinion, especially among Democrats. Um, Democratic opinion for the first time is more favorable, has Palestinian favorable numbers, when you say how favorable, unfavorable are attitudes toward Palestinians, Israelis, the Palestinian numbers among Democrats are higher than Israelis. That's never happened before. Uh, and it, it's not just that there's anger at what Israel does in some ways, but there's also an awareness of what Palestinians have been enduring. Um, and that is the result of 
demographic shifts and the way people get information, young people, uh, quote unquote minorities, um, they, they have a different sense of the world. I have a theory about this because I was I've, I've heard a lot of people say, oh, it's because of this, it's because of that, it's because of this. Okay, I'm gonna throw a bunch of things out there because I feel like it's all of these things together. So first off, um, the, the the Black Lives, the, the movement for Black Lives, uh, which is undeniably connected in many ways to the, the fight for Palestine, um, you know, at least in, in the organizational sense, and the organizing that happened and the, um, the uprising of the last year. Simultaneously, uh, Trump being so just so aggressive and so aligned with Netanyahu uh, in, a, in a way where normie Democrats are like, <laughs> no, we can't can't associate with the Trump monster. Um, social media and uh, and 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 just a deep and, and frankly, Bernie Sanders, um, you know, really tapping in and, and, and elevating this conversation through you. And, and I think you deserve a, a tremendous amount of credit uh, pushing this over the last, you know, four decades in institutions, pushing it, you know, forward with, with Bernie Sanders and simultaneously supporting candidates. This is the, the fourth part, fifth part, supporting candidates across the country who are running, um, who, Rashida Sleep. I mean, you were one of her, her, her early backers, very close to her. And look at what it means to have her voice in Congress right now. Um, so all of these things, I, I, you know, it just seems like, I hate to say a perfect storm because it's not a perfect storm, but I feel like that's kind of part of it. Am I right? Am I missing something? Am I overestimating it, some things? It, it, is, it is all of them, as you know. Um, I would just sort of add a little. Uh, it wasn't just the Trump-Netanyahu um, marriage. It was also the Netanyahu-Obama hostility. I mean, here was a guy who from the 90s, I mean, when after Oslo was signed, um, Netanyahu opened a lobby office in Washington to lobby against the Rabin government. Uh, they used to issue a- What was Netanyahu at the time? Just for- He was, at the time, he didn't have a post. He had been uh, the spokesperson uh, for the foreign ministry and he'd been in the um, uh, in the in the UN mission for I mean he'd had a number of minor posts but he was a Likud operative and he and Yigal Karman and another guy um, started something called the cloakroom something they they used to issue these it was back in the fax days right they would do these fax things that would go to members of Congress and it was um, uh, it was the first time Rabin got got pissed. He said it was the first time that the opposition in Israel lobbied against the government in Washington. And when Gingrich was elected uh, to the leadership, the Netanyahu-Gingrich marriage uh, was absolutely solidified because Netanyahu had actually been a buddy of the neocons going back to the 70s. I mean, he'd been an American and he developed relationships with the the George Wills and the Richard Pearls and the, you know, that, that whole Doug Fife and all that crowd. Um, and so he has this marriage with Gingrich. So you have Clinton and Rabin against Gingrich and Netanyahu. Netanyahu's first invited speech to the joint session of Congress was Gingrich in 1996, where he came to give a speech on 
called it making a clean break. He wanted to end the Oslo peace process. He did everything he could to, to do that. So the relationship of him and Republicans goes way back. I think we only, and we tried to do our best to publicize it and talk about the relationships. I think it only became very manifest when he came, became hostile to Obama um, and then got invited again to Congress to speak against uh, the, the Iran deal. Um, and Black members boycotted that, if you recall. It had the same impact as when Andy Young spoke to the PLO in 1979 and got fired from his job as UN ambassador. That had a shock in the, in the Black community. The Obama Netanyahu thing had the same kind of shock and turned people away. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's a long history there that I think has now become solidified in people's consciousness. Uh, at the same time, what you say about the 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 uh, about Black Lives is yes, organizational. It's also uh, partly generational and and partly racial. There is my brother wrote a book back in two thousand eight, which he defined that generation as white, black, whatever color, as the first globals. It's the first generation who have a global consciousness. They don't they don't see the world in the way that, you know, it's not like my town, my village, my soccer team, whatever. It's they think of of the environment. They think of, uh, you know, all of the things that are affecting the world. It's the first generation that cared about Darfur or Miramar or the Rohingya, who even knew where that is in the, you know, the Uyghurs. I mean, most my generation didn't even know what Uyghurs were, thought it was a kind of a hot dog or something, you know, in the the Rohingya, I had no idea what, but now you have a generation that knows that stuff and cares about that. And so Palestinians fit into that um, that framework. And, um, and simultaneously, uh, there's a huge, I mean, I, I, I was talking with this off offline with somebody about this in New York, just how there's so many, especially since 9-11, refugees that have come from from different parts of the world. It's not mainly European refugees, you know, uh, whether it's Sudan, whether it's the Mideast, whether it's Syria, whether it's Iraq. I mean, last night I had a happy hour with an Iraqi refugee. Literally, I mean, just it's 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 so much more entrenched in our generation in, in a different way um, than the World War II generation of our grandparents, who obviously also understood uh, global politics in a different sense. But yeah, I, I, I it's not as large, but. Um, I mean, it's transformed demographics in New York City in terms of politics enough to make a difference. Because the refugees who came in earlier generations, uh, because of the way that immigration system and the quotas were worked, were European, right? I mean, it was and it was big. I mean, when when East Europeans first came, it was we don't want that riffraff. I mean, the same stuff that's being said. I mean, the shithole countries back then were were Hungary uh, and Poland. We don't want them, um, but we've th that's all been changed. And, and now the, the people coming who we say can't be like us and won't ever be like us are from the Americas and are from Africa and are from South Asia. Uh, and they have uh, different religions, um, but um, they will, look, I, ha I happen to be um, in one way an American exceptionalist right, which is maybe unusual for being the progressive Democrat, whatever. But I happen to believe that as I look at history, there have been continuing periods and, and movements 
that have tried to define America as white and Christian uh, and, and, and not just white, but Northwest European, uh, old Pat Robertson back, you know, Donald Trump, et cetera. They're not like us, but America changes. And what happens is that as these groups become American, America itself changes. Talk about what's American food? What's American music? What's American humor? What's American style or fashion or culture? You can't, you can't define it without there being an influence of black and Italian and Chinese and Jewish and now Arab. The only problem I have with the Arab one is that they don't give us credit for it. They call it Israeli food and Israeli whatever. But you know, we are all changing what America is. And, um, and so I believe this will also happen. And unfortunately, tragically, what's gonna happen is that <laughs> uh, 30 years from now, the descendants of the immigrants and the refugees who are coming now being rejected will most likely want to reject the immigrants and refugees coming back then, you know, coming at that point. But it all, it changed. There's a dialectic here and it, and it continues to evolve. I think America just gets more diverse and better. What, I mean, when like, you know, my mother's generation looked at the Eastern Europeans and said, oh, well, we can't, you know, can't deal with them. I mean, they're like, weird and different uh, but you know hazelton pennsylvania um hazelton pennsylvania is where barletta uh, came from uh the, the 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 guy who as mayor tried to block uh he passed an arizona law in his city basically blocking illegal HB 1070 you mean yeah, yeah right uh he then ran for congress and won and was a bigot and a trump-like bigot uh, he's probably going to run for Senate this year. He's a horrid person, but he mobilized. Hazelton was a coal mining town of 33,000 people. Uh, it had dropped to 18,000 people. And then Latinos started to come in. They had never had a black person or a person of color. It was an all white city, um, but it was complex. Hungarian, Slovak, Czech, et cetera. So many people. Um, some great researcher did a Hazelton then and now, went back to the 20s and 30s when the, the Eastern Europeans were coming to work in the mines. And he found the, the news stories and the city council speeches um, about the lazy Hungarians or the drunken this or the whatever that uh, and how dangerous it is. And they fight and they rob and they this. And he compared it with the stuff that the descendants of that generation were saying about Latinos today. Um, What's happened now in Hazleton in the last 10 years is that since Barletta is that the city went down to 18,000, is now back up into the 20s, mid 20s. The, the Latino communities brought businesses, they brought jobs, they brought a new young generation of kids and they're changing the character of the city. Um, and, and oh, by the way, they're intermarrying. Um, Oh, God forbid. Yeah. Uh, it, I'll, I'll have to ask him. We have Rep Brab on from Pennsylvania on a little bit later. I'll ask him about his experience with uh, the. There, <laughs> there is this change taking place. Anyway, so, sorry. So let's. Rude. No, no, no. It's, it's great because I'll ask Rep. Uh, you should connect with him too. Rep Brab is, a, is the most progressive uh, representative in Pennsylvania in the 200th district. Uh, so he's always telling, you know, horror stories about being in, in, in the legislature there. But. Okay, so so the current state right now, there's this ceasefire, which uh, you know, for our audience at least, is is definitely not a solution. Um, 
a Band-Aid, I guess. Uh, okay, there was a relationship with, with, with Obama that was not great, was tense. Um, what is the relationship like with Biden and where, what could possibly be done now? So much, Israel has taken over so much land. I mean, we've been seeing these maps over the last few weeks circulate on the internet and it's, it's jarring and it's horrifying. I mean, where, where is the solution and is it possible with Biden and, and you know, what's their relationship really like? Look, I I will agree with you. I, I you know I call it the two-state absolution, not solution, because it's like politicians who at this point don't want to talk about it. When asked, a New York Times did an interview with all the candidates in 2019, uh, and when asked what would the question was, what would you do if Israel continues to violate the human rights of Palestinians? And they looked like because they did it video as well as transcript. Oh, yeah. They look like, I don't know if you ever read the comic strip, Big Nate, when, when his teacher gives him a pop quiz and his eyes bug out of his head. <laughs> and it's like the thought cloud is, oh shit, what am I gonna do <laughs> study? Um, and they all look like that. They all look like that, with the exception of Bernie and a couple others. Um, so and, and then they were like, oh God. Then they said, oh, I support the two-state solution. It was like, okay, am I done now? Can I get out of here? It's like, you know, um, and, and, and so, they support it at the very point in time when you can't have it. When it yeah. might have made a difference, they didn't support it. So now here we are. Um, I don't know where you'd create the Palestinian state because so much land has been taken and it needs to be viable. And you can't include some of these crazy settlers who are really ideologically nuts uh, in the midst of it. Um, so the struggle becomes one for human rights and equality. And that's a long haul. Uh, and I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't wish that on anybody to have to go through another generation of this. But I think if the administration is going to play any meaningful role, they have to rescind their platform commitment not to condition aid to Israel. Um, and that doesn't mean just financial aid in the form of military. I mean, the, dumb, the dumbest thing in the world was agreeing to 735 million in arms um, to Israel in the midst of this thing. They did it before it, but the, the optics of it, I said before, I said, we've become the, the coat holder and the, uh, the cheerleader for Israel. Now we've become the gun reloader. It's, it's like, what a weird, awful thing to, you would think some, somebody at the White House would say, I know we agreed to this, but let's, let's hold off right now because it was was that Netanyahu's idea, like in terms of the timing of all of it. I know he's got his own political situation, but Israel gets seems... three point eight billion, but then they can ask for how to spend that. See, they get the money up front in a check. They don't ever, unlike every other country that gets aid from the U.S., uh, it gets parsed out through AID and other government contractors. Israel gets it in a lump sum. And then they say, oh, we're going to use it for this. We're going to use it for that. We're going to use it. They're collecting interest on it in American banks, right? Because they get the check in October before anybody else gets theirs. They get it in a check. And then they decide how they want to use it. They wanted to use it. Now, did Netanyahu ask for it? Did Biden offer it? I assume the Israelis asked for it, which means that this may have been something that they knew that they would need to get replenished because they were using all their bombs. And so becoming the, the resupplier makes us complicit in what they just did. It was, it's, it's not just immoral and illegal. 
in terms of our own law about how weapons can be used, it, it, it's also politically stupid in terms of the optics of it. Um, and so, you know, I, I mean, it, it's, I don't, I didn't get it at all. And I, we, in the poll, what we found is that absolute overwhelming majority of Democrats uh, were saying, don't do it. Don't give this to them now. It's not a good idea. Um, and Republicans were evenly divided on it, which I thought was also kind of interesting. Um, so where's Biden? I don't think we know. I mean, I think we know where Biden was, but what we saw was that Biden could be moved by progressives on economic front, on uh, several domestic policy issues. And also- His own staff. He had 200 members of his staff sign a letter. 500. 500. 500. Oh, last time I- uh, That's That's insane. And I'm so proud because it was organized by somebody who used to work for me for two years. And then before he left to go, she left to go to the campaign. I mean, just a, a great young woman. And, uh, and, and that's where his base is. So will he re recognize his base wants him to move? There are some entrenched interests. I mean, he's been around for so long and he's got ingrained attitudes. It'll take some, some moving, but I, I do think that the writing on the wall is there. Look, I, I always say, you don't judge a president by the agenda they set for themselves, but how they respond to the agenda the world sets for them. He was gonna focus on everything but the Middle East. Guess what? Middle East doesn't give you a pass. Um, and so he's got to address it now. And, uh, and what the ceasefire did was basically just stop the bombs for a bit, but nothing got solved in Jerusalem. Nothing got solved in, in, with regard to the uh, Al-Aqsa. And nothing got solved with regard to Gaza. And frankly, I'm not a fan of Hamas at all, at all, at all. Um, I think they hijacked what was happening in Jerusalem because they wanted to be the center of attention and um, ended up getting 230 of their people dead and their, you know, the Gaza Strip destroyed. Uh, to go back to right where we were before it all started, no progress at all. Not a smart move on their part. Uh, a cruel and and just in, inhuman behavior on the part of the Israelis, stupid um, and and totally inhuman on the part of, I mean, these were two bad guys going at each other and the Palestinian people were the victims of the whole thing. Um, but that said, uh, the administration has to figure it out and, and there is no solution with Hamas, but there's no solution without Hamas. And, and uh, Abu Mazen, the Palestinian president, Mahmoud Abbas, he's no prize either but there needs to be Palestinian unity. And so pressuring the, the, the Fatah and Hamas to create a unity within the PLO and have the PLO be the organized force that negotiates this with new leadership has to happen. I frankly had my favorite in the Palestinian election that was about to come up uh, that got canceled. I thought that Nasser al-Kidwa was just a remarkable uh, leader he and Marwan Barghouti combined would have provided vision and charisma that was needed and a, and a new strategy. Um, but they're not going to be able to negotiate two states. But what they can negotiate is a, a controlling of how Israel behaves with checkpoints, with denying Palestinians the freedom to import and export to grow their economy, with denying them freedom of movement within the territories with denying them the freedom to build homes um, without fear of being demolished, um, to have access to Jerusalem. I mean, in Jerusalem, Israel calls it East Jerusalem. It's not. 
1968, nine, when they started this, they annexed, what they annexed were actually 28 Palestinian villages uh, around Jerusalem. It'd be the same as taking Nassau County and saying it's all New York, right? Yeah, people, whatever. But, but the problem is, is that what happens then if, if you add, for, I do use the Beltway example here. If you, if you take the Beltway and say, this is all Washington now, right? Um, what happens to all the people outside of the Beltway who work in Washington every day and can't get in because it's closed? What happens to the businesses that depend upon them? So I, when I was going back and forth to Jerusalem, the hotel clerk was, had a PhD in clinical psychology. And his clients all came from the West Bank. And he couldn't, he was now working as a ho, uh, the night clerk at a hotel. Um, and you have that, the frustration in Jerusalem is that they, it was the hub of the West Bank and now it's severed. Israelis don't shop in East Jerusalem. Palestinians can't shop. The businesses dried up, the hospitals, the, the, the social service entities, the schools are all severed from the, the rest of the body. Um, Biden can do something about that. He can tell the Israelis, cut that shit out, connect these people with each other and stop seizing their homes to Judaize East Jerusalem to get the Arabs numbers down and the Jewish numbers up. There's a lot we can do, um, but we have to be willing to tell Israel to change its behavior and condition U.S. support on that, not just the, the military aid, but are we... Why, why when, the, when the Palestinians said they're going to international criminal court um, with, with charges, why did we say our, our response was to sanction the international criminal court, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah. Um, okay, we have a couple minutes, only uh, two minutes left. I'm but... sorry, I, I've gone No, 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 this is, oh my God, no, this is, this is, you've touched on everything. This is, there's nothing <laughs> to be sorry about. This is why we're having you on, Dr. Z. But I have one more question. Um, Netanyahu's political situation uh, was uh, this was his his strategy to to stay in office under investigation, et cetera. Um, did it work? Do you think it worked? Well, I don't know. The 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 opposition is like um, a Rubik's cube, uh, except Rubik's cubes can be solved. I mean, if this group says. Well, we want to get out. The only thing they agree on is getting Netanyahu out, but they hate each other and they have wildly different views of each other. Um, and he's played them quite well. Um, so I think, yeah, he gave himself a breath of uh, a reprieve right now. Um, I, um, I don't know if they have another election, if it comes out any differently. I mean, what I've seen from the polls is that some parties go up and some parties come down, but the overall balance is, is no different. Uh, the internal divisions on the Jewish side are huge. Um, one of the things that was interesting in this conflict, if I could use interesting, was that for the Israelis who said two things, one was, well, we have peace with all the Arab countries now, they're making peace with us, the conflict's over. Well, they learned that that wasn't the case. And for those who said, look, one of the Arab parties wants to be a part of our government now, uh, so we've solved the Palestinian problem too in, inside. Well, that didn't work out either because what happened in the, the, the urban, the unrest in the urban centers was not as the New York Times describes, 
angry mobs, Arab violent, violent Arabs, whatever. And the words that Isabel Kirshner used were just grating. I mean, if it had been written about a black people, we would say racist. The group that actually fomented this was a group, the focus of which is to move people into these cities to make them more Jewish. And so they were bringing settlers from the West Bank back into Israel to live in these cities that had too many Arab people living in them. And they were creating in internal tension in the cities. Um, and it finally erupted because Arabs are second. There was a, an interesting interview I saw with somebody recently, an Israeli saying, he, the guy said to him, do, do, is it fair when people call Israel an apartheid state? He said, no, 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 no. We're, we're not an apartheid state. That's, that's, that's anti-Semitic to say that. We're a state that has first, second, and third class citizens. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> and, he and said the quiet no, part out loud. <laughs> with, no, with no sense that it didn't compute. Um, oh the, the, there's a problem. But what happened when they erupted was that the Israelis had to say to themselves, wait a minute. It's not working here. It's not working there. It's not working anywhere. And um, I don't think they've, it's dawned on a lot of people yet. But, um, but I think a change in Biden policy, if we were to get tough with Israel, the debate in Israel over their future would change. Yeah. Right now, there's no price to pay right. for bad behavior. We're their paternal. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's essentially it, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like it's like a spoiled child. You keep saying to them, no, we don't want you to build settlements. They do. Don't build settlements. They do. Don't build settlements. They do. They're going to get the message. Guess what? You don't give a shit what they say. I can exactly. do it. So exactly. impunity is what runs the day. And what we have to be able to do is say, you cannot continue to operate this way. Yep. Dr. Zogby, much love. Thank Be you. well. Stay well. Thank you for joining us. Follow me on Twitter if you want to get more in the poll. Yes. It comes out all uh, in. We're going to bring it out in dribs and drabs. We'd be happy to, to share well, views. Put your Twitter um, in the bio section so everybody sees it on Twitch and, and YouTube. Thank you, Dr. Z. Take Bye. care. We'll be right back with our amazing panel. Uh, Dr. Z is, is Dr. Z's on right now. What am I talking about? Uh, Representative Rab and Arun Chowdhury uh, will be on in just a second. So y'all know I love Sunset Lakes CBD. They're the best. I used to... Uh, I used to be skeptical of CBD because I bought some from a bodega for like a hundred bucks and it tasted really disgusting and didn't do anything. And I didn't understand. I thought it was a gimmick, but uh, I learned about Sunset Lake CBD from our good friend, Sam Cedar, who swore by it for sleeping and other things. And guess what? He was right. <laughs> Jokes on me. Uh, Sunset Lake CBD is a farmer owned company that ships craft CBD products directly from their farm in Vermont to your door. They have all types of products, salves, uh, coffee, gummies, tinctures, uh, everything to help with stress, aches and pains. Their farm was a Ben and Jerry's farm that they decided to diversify and grow premium hemp. Uh, they enhance, when you support them, you're enhancing rural economies. This is a great company that treats their employees well. Their minimum wage is $15 an hour and the employees own the majority of the company. And on top of it, they support independent media like our show and of course the majority report and the David Packman show as well. 
We have a new product out, the CBD dog biscuits. You got to check that out. And the CBD lotion. The dog biscuits are edible by all beings. Uh, if the beings can eat pumpkin, peanut butter, and oat flour. I think that's gluten-free, if I'm correct. Uh, you got to go check that one out. But I, I love it. I use the tincture every night uh, to go to sleep. It gives me a deeper sleep. I wake up earlier in the morning. I've known that I've no noticed that my sleep cycles have changed drastically. Real quick, Dorsey, tell me, what are you using right now real quick real quick i um i mean i'm always a big fan of the gummies those are my favorites i have them here on my Pop a gummy right now i want to see you do it in okay <laughs> okay they're so delicious the problem is i eat like six at a time that's the problem they are delicious and i would want to so have the whole bottle but yeah. one's enough and um yeah i'll feel i'll have my headache will slowly clear out i have a headache from last night from going to the garden and cheering on the knicks from the knicks game yelling my head one. off you can probably hear it uh the next one yes it was great uh, a lot of fun and i was okay. screaming the whole time and now i have a huge headache <laughs> even when take i take that cbd <laughs> yeah uh but yeah i uh, i also like the uh the tincture before bed for a good night's sleep it's like it's the best and it's um, fabulous yeah can't can't really do without it these days all right, guys, if you would like to purchase some Sunset Lake CBD products, go to sunsetlakecbd.com, sunsetlakecbd.com. You will get 20% off of your purchase if you type in Nomi, N-O-M-I, at sunsetlakecbd.com. Type in Nomi. It's worth it. They're amazing. All right, we got some Arun Chad reaction here and Rep Rab action here. Thank you for your patience. We had a very uh, 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 a good conversation with Dr. Zogby earlier who Hazleton, Pennsylvania, he mentioned that there's a crazy representative there in Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. your, your colleague? No. Which one? What? No, the what? one that represents who did like the SB 1070 law, but in Pennsylvania. That's not the topic. I just wanted to throw that out there. Well, see, now I gotta, I gotta be reminded who it is, because you know. You got so many, you got a close, big legislature. Be a close personal friend of mine. It's a schoolyard, now you're The, the Republican, yeah. I'm gonna guess it's not your friend. He's not yeah. your friend. Yeah. All right, guys. Thanks for your patience. Let's talk some politics. We got some politics. Obama uh, talks about what he could have done better in his presidency. I feel like this is a very good panel to have this conversation. So let's roll that and get former Obama staffer and Obama supporter the responses. Yep. I'm ready. Here we go. Ready. Oh, wait. One second. Got to get the clip roll. ready. Meanwhile, Ron, where are you? You're not in Berlin. In Kosovo, and I just finished uh, recording our late night reading for the committee program on Monday at 3 p.m. Eastern. And you I want did to hear not introduce Siberia you guys. You caught me. I did not introduce you. So while Dorsey's rolling this out, Representative Rab is, if you've never watched our show before, he represents the 200th district of Pennsylvania, Northwest Philly, the most progressive member, uh, and Arun Chowdhury, is, oh, I believe it. Oh, it's my, it's my opinion. <laughs> not, I'm not asking you. Arun Chowdhury uh, is the host of the committee program, which airs here Mondays at 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. He is, of course, a political filmmaker, formerly the first White House uh, videographer and creative director for Bernie Sanders 2016. How are we with that clip? Oh, he looks so if I, old. If you ask me what are the things I wish I might have done better or more effectively. The thing that I, I, I constantly struggled with was how could I get the passion and uh, concern that had been focused in with Trayvon and Ferguson and uh, the subsequent events, uh, how could I 
help people make the link between uh, those events and political power and action, not just at the federal level, but mo even more importantly at the state and local levels where the vast majority of criminal law and policing decisions are made. Okay. I'm just going to start with a little bit of my take. I know that you guys have much bigger takes. I'm just going to start with the thing that I know, which is if you cared about state and local power, maybe you should have not funneled all the money into your consultants' pockets because all those Democrats who put all that beautiful money into winning elections, um, after your first shellacking, if you recall that, maybe you should have like taken those resources and put them into state and local governments so that uh, these criminal justice laws would not be uh, non-existent and slashed in many of these states as Rep. Rab knows too well because Republicans took them over and then gerrymandered and then you just like caused 20 years of problems. Just gonna start with that one. Uh, there's a lot more to unpack there, but let's go to Rep. Rab first and then uh, seal the deal with former Obama staffer, <laughs> Ron Chowdhury. You just love saying that, don't you? Poor Ron. No, uh, ditto, that's it. <laughs> no, no, I feel, I, I feel, I feel that. And, and I will say, I think, I think Obama's not the qualified person to sort of talk about this. You know what I mean? Like the presidency is a bubble. You know, the president is in many ways a hostage to many things, their own belief systems, the people around them. And, uh, you know, anyone who's heard me talk about it on your radio show, especially know me, you know, about my time with Obama. The I, difference when he says my radio oh, show, he means my old radio show on Sirius XM. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. sorry to be For folks who didn't know yeah, I had a radio we, show. You know. We go back. Yeah, it was, it was good. And uh, look, he believes in the meritocracy. He's a product of the meritocracy. He's maybe one of the last products of the meritocracy. And that way that no one under a certain age believes that there is such a thing. He believes it all the way down to his toes because he feels like that's the only way he is in any way that he is. And because of that implicit trust of those kinds of institutions, the people around you just are the ones, they are the gatekeepers of ideology. You get a range of choices as a president. Here's seven things you can do, you know, and if the range of them are seven pretty crappy things, I would say more often than not, Barack Obama would pick the best of the seven crappy things. But his failure was to ask beyond that, you know, to be like, you know what, these aren't good enough. I said I wanted to end the war in Iraq for real, not pretend. Uh, and like the options just didn't come in. And I don't think he questioned that. So I think where it comes to questioning things, he doesn't question those things. Like, you know, in his book, he didn't question Rahm Emanuel. To my, you know, thinking even then on staff, you're like, why is this guy here? And we don't, we don't like this guy. <laughs> you know, it wasn't like he was popular with the staff. You know, it was like, what the hell? Why is this guy here? And, and so I, I, I feel like it's too bad that he didn't spend those years writing the book, sort of doing more of this interesting reflecting and that the book was so sort of ordinary. And this comment seems like something he's thinking of. And I know him. This is something he's thinking of as he's going. He yeah. didn't like premeditate this that much. He's actually answering the question, which seems like a, a dumb thing to do to me. You know, he really should have thought like presidents are obsessed with their legacy. And he really doesn't seem to see uh, that where he wants to take his legacy in the normal president, you know, normal president to do normal president things direction is just not where the country is going. See, I have a theory that I don't think he's of meritocracy. I think people who are of meritocracy, you know, really like, I mean, I'm not saying that he didn't hustle. He absolutely, you know, lost an election, ran again, but there is this like, it's almost like he has, it's, it's like a de Blasio thing, right? 
creatures of politics and the political environment, but lack like the actual political skills that, 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 and I think Kamala Harris has the same issue. There's, there's this rawness, there's this fighter. I mean, you know, a run very well. It's like the Tammany Hall instincts. It's what, it's what yeah. Chuck Schumer has. His answer is sort of organizing speak. It's not politics. Like, it's not how politics it's that's not right. an organizer either. He's not, I mean, that's the thing. I was listening to him. I was like, that's not an organizer speaking, former community organizer. And that's not how somebody who ascended to the presidency speaks post-presidency, post-Trump. It just felt like it was disconnected from what I think he's the emblem of, uh, disconnected from the ground, which is the neoliberal class of, of that generation of politicians that were groomed and, you know, supported from Harvard, blah, blah, blah. They're, you know, they, they, you know, and when I say groomed, I mean, like they provide funders, you know, around them and they, they really, they don't have to do the work that Rep. Rab does where he has to, it's just different work. It's different work. And so what happens is they have a technocratic universe around them of all the seven people delivering things. Whereas if you're, I don't know, I just try, I, I, I'm not defending Chuck Schumer's politics, but I don't feel like Chuck Schumer is waiting for someone to give him an idea. He's like bath salts. I'm doing a I'm doing a press conference on that right now because I know that people are angry about bath salts and it works. And and he sings, you know, New York State of Mind or whatever his song was. I love New York on yeah, the yeah. subway the other day because he's just like he sees a thing and he's like, I gotta respond to it because I'm a politician who's on the streets. Rep Rab technocrats. That's that was basically my my rant was just basically he's a technocrat. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> Uh, I, I don't. I, I'm having a hard time processing the meritocracy uh, framing, and I it it reminds me of something he he said. I don't understand. Fight it out, guys. Problem with that. Fight it out. Fight it out. <laughs> no, no. But Barack Obama, no one wanted. You know, like you're talking about, like you know, oh, this guy from Harvard got to be president. Yeah, how did this half black guy get to go to Harvard? You know, like you know, like nobody wanted him there. His parents didn't have a lot of money. Like, you know, these things, like to actually see your life sort of go step by step. And I say this because like, this is a fight I get in with people because like my parents were born lower middle class and are now upper middle class. They did the thing, you know, like came from India, hustled, was born in the Bronx, hustled. And like, I, I, with my eyes open, see that there is no meritocracy and see there is no way forward and see none of this stuff works. But this stuff does get ingrained with you and it's not bull crap because it, because it, it, you know, it's basically, it becomes a weapon, especially used against immigrant communities, where like you yes. can't afford not to have that energy and not to have that push. Well, I mean, in many respects, in many respects, Arun, like I think he borrows from some of that um, perspective, not being African American, right? I mean, he's you know he's African American, but he's not African American. Like that, his he did not have the typical black experience. Um, exactly. Like, and so I think in many ways he was learning on the job as an elected official uh, representing a whole bunch of folks. And sometimes, you know, the whole kind of post-racial uh, meme that is attributed to him. Like, I, I've never met a black person who said that. I mean, who wasn't a conservative. Like I just, um, or saying that, you know, it's not racism anymore, it's more classism. I don't hear even super privileged black folks say stuff like that. And it's, it's something, it's a tension point in the black community because we don't want to play the, uh, well, he's not really black because he is. But when we're talking about the lived experiences of a Barack Obama, they are, they are anomalous in many respects. He's not, it's not anomalous that he went to um, elite schools, 
Black folk have been going to elite schools, you know, for like three generations now. That's that's not anomalous. But how he processes it, given his own lived experiences, that's very different. And that's a conversation a lot of us don't want to have in public because then um, white folk who are not operating in good faith use that to divide us. Mm -hmm. And that's you know we already have enough divisions as is. And so now that he's out of office, I think there's a a, a more vocal subset of black folk, myself included, who um, don't feel as um, concerned about uh, dissenting opinions about um, his his leadership in office or lack thereof in certain ways. I, I found um, I found him particularly as it related to issues around racial justice particularly lacking. And I understand that you know there's a great double standard when a black person in a position of power says things. Um, he's punished for it in ways that Bill Clinton wasn't. Bill Clinton. They, I think they did a study of how much he talked about race compared to Barack Obama, and it was a lot more, but he was a white Southerner. But he, he could, could say that. He it's, could. It's, not, a, and it's not a level playing field, right? You know what would have helped, though? If he uh, actually put money into state parties so he could have a bunch of local people uh, supporting him rather than, I don't know, like, you know, it'd be great to have like an army of Democrats being like, no, 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 crazy ass Republican racist. You know, don't forget the Tea Party rose and we just were just like, oh, please take the tea, just take it, take it. Sorry, I'm. This is this is like it's. So one more thing I want to add to this because of of the conversation we had prior with Dr. Zogby about um, the situation in the Middle East. You know, it's not just that he was raised in an atypical American situation, Black American situation in Hawaii, but also abroad in Asia. And so mm -hmm. his he was able to be very. I mean, strangely courageous um, when it came to some foreign policy issues. Some. It did not permeate through the Democratic Party, did not permeate through Congress, it definitely didn't go into Senate, but he had a very toxic relationship with Netanyahu and was able to, to just see things like almost from an intuitive lens because he was raised in a place, like, like he, he was in Indonesia. He knows I mean, that guy. Just, we all know that guy. Yeah. Yeah. We know that guy. And, 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 and it's so interesting, the dichotomy between how he did fluently speak, not my words, um, speak from a from from a, a typical black american perspective from an intuitive perspective the way that he did when it came to foreign issues it was so it's just so interesting to see this person who um is now i think some of the foreign policy is also from hippie mom you know and i think it's from that well, that was why she was in indonesia yeah. she was doing yeah you know, she, and so like so it, you know it, it, it even has, I think, some of that sort of 60s dynamic in it. But actually, I have, I have like such an interesting thing, like when you're president. So when he met BB, uh, I have a great picture of the two of them meeting each other for the first time in 2008 during the election. Like we went, uh, we were in Jerusalem, I was taking pictures that this day. Is the general election or the primary? Like, uh, before the general election, Obama did a foreign trip because he didn't have enough foreign experience. And so this was, it was actually a very smart move. Mitt Romney did the same thing and it was a disaster in 2012, which I love every second of. Um, and it, yeah, it's a visceral thing. It's like, you know, I felt like me, it's like, you know, being when you're middle class around rich people, you're like, oh, okay, I know how you operate, you know, and you just sort of like learn how it all works. But something he didn't get to see that is such an interesting moment that speaks to the complexity of all of this was our first trip to Africa. He spoke in Ghana. Uh, and you know, it was like so many people went and saw him, the continent like shifted, like whatever it was this insane. Obviously people made dresses, you know, that it was, people were pretty happy about it, except on the beach right outside the hotel we were at, which is like, not like a fancy beach. It's like the hotels are walled off from the beach, which is like where actually regular people are 
playing soccer, doing their thing. And it was just regular uh, Ghanaian people. And they hated, hated Barack Obama and like wanted to talk about it. And it was, you know, what? it was Why? a lot of, because he was a black American, they didn't consider him to be a proper African. And, and, uh, and they, I think were sort of reflecting the kind of conflict that can come between those two communities. And we're like, you know, we're the tough ones. We're from the continent, you know, like we'll go to America, you know, we'll, you know, like we'll mess all you up. It was just like sort of very, you know, Obama was in town and they didn't like it and they were expressing it as close as they could get to his security fence. And it's something that he would never get to see, you know, but it was just such an, so you know, rich moment in just all of these things coming together, class and race and colonialism and history and modern geopolitics, what a mess. So he, I mean, that, that, that really is, um, I think there's, you know, there's, there's this, I guess unspoken rule, I don't, maybe it's an official rule with historians where presidential historians are not allowed, like not to do like official biographies of presidents until 20 years later, supposedly, I was told by an historian, um, hmm. and until after their presidency. So the reason is, is that the policies start, I mean, from what I was told, the policies the legacies of the policies, the legacies of legislation, the there's been enough of a tie that's shifted for there to be a real understanding of what the presidency represented. And I think we're just starting to kind of get this holistic perspective of what the presidency of Barack Obama just starting uh, could have been. Just as if, you know, just, just like we now understand who Bill Clinton was in a deeper way uh, in, in, in the general public. Okay, I wanna, I wanna switch gears just real quick. Um, this is such a big conversation. I would, I would love to continue this for like an hour, but I wanted to talk about this yesterday. We're gonna talk about it today. Uh, congressman Richie Torres is a congressman from New York, uh, from the Bronx. He sure was a city is. council member uh, in New York City and he was just elected in the Bronx. He um, replaced Jose Serrano who uh, was there for a long time and was arguably more progressive. I would not go as far to say he's like a progressive hero. I feel the people who say that, I'm just like, uh, okay. But definitely more progressive than Richie Torres, who is a millennial, um, who's talked about his mental health issues publicly, who is a housing advocate because he grew up in public housing. So in New York City, when it comes to some issues, he does stand more progressive. But then there's some other issues not so much, and we'll get to that. But let's play uh, this clip of Karl Rove talking about what he knows so well, the split in the progressive democratic socialist movement. <laughs> However, Democratic Congressman from Minnesota, Dean Phillips, he says, I'll say the quiet part out loud. It's time for progressives to start condemning anti-Semitism and violent attacks on Jewish people with the same intention and vigor demonstrated in other areas of activism. The silence has been deafening. End quote on the tweet, Carl. How does this play out then? Well, Dean Phillips is a more traditional Democrat. I, I look to Richie Torres, who is, who is a Democratic Socialist and, and a strong supporter of Israel. So there's a divide even within the hard left of the Democratic Party. But I don't think either the White House nor the Democratic leadership wants to uh, show the, uh, the, the divide inside the Democratic Party. And frankly, the Democratic Socialist left is making a mistake by trying to, make a, by trying to have a debate over this. Bernie Sanders, if he tried to block the uh, sale of arms to Israel would end up on the losing side in a big, big positive 
uh, vote for such aid and a very small vote against such aid. I frankly think that might be healthy because it would certainly uh, show the, the current state of affairs inside the Democratic Party. There is a growing sentiment against Israel, but I think it's still a minority sentiment inside the Democratic Party. So virtually every Republican and most Democrats together uh, stand in support of a Democratic Israel and its right to exist. Oh, interesting. Um, I didn't know DSA endorsed Richie Torres. Yeah, I hadn't heard that either. Such and a brilliant. This is so Carl. This is so Rovian. I, it's brilliant. I mean, he's who, better than like he had that meltdown, and so we all sort of forget that he's actually super clever, right? Like politically. Carl yeah, and like you know his thing about finding brilliant. new voters and wedge lines and the old things and busting it up. I mean, like he sees, you know, he's he brilliant. sees the black light. The black light on the Democratic Party. He's like, whoa, 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 yuck. You know, like he sees every little nook and cranny and he knows how to get in there. It's so, I mean, listen, it's categorically false. We, for those of you false. who may be Make too sure young to remember yeah. who Karl Rove was, but Karl Rove is also an effing genius. We got to think like that. We got to do that stuff. I don't know. Chris, what do you think? Well, I mean, one of the things I... It, one is we can't be saying anti-Semitism, we mean anti-Jewish, number one, because Arabs are Semites too. I think that's important yeah. to make, it is factually accurate. So I don't ever use that term, unless you're talking about both Arabs and Jews. And 99% of people who use that term are not talking about Arabs. And there's always been anti-Arab hate and violence. Um, been stereotyped in Hollywood. Et cetera, et cetera. There's been there have been in in state law, in local ordinances, anti-Jewish um, policies. This is the norm. The thing that we and, and certainly anti-black, anti-immigrant. If you're from the wrong places in the world, the swarthier, swarthier your ancestors, the less likely you are well treated in this country. So the thing that we have in common is fighting white supremacy. And <laughs> if we don't say that then we are complicit. And also like some of the, the biggest hate that I've gotten from me posting my solidarity with, with Palestinian civilians has been white supremacists who I know are anti-Semitic. They course. hate Jews and Arabs. They just love Israel for themselves, you know, after the rapture. And yeah, exactly. And I, and I, so we're talking okay. about, yeah. So let's play a little Rovian politics here. I'm gonna start calling, uh, I'm going to start calling Richie Torres a rapture, a rapture uh, dino. And I say that because not only is Richie Torres a, uh, a partner with APAC, who the majority of the people that APAC support are Republicans. That's just, there are absolutely Democrats that they support. But let's just be real clear. This is a right-wing organization, Zionist organization that is infecting, you know, has it, it, with their, with their, they've gone into the to the religious right and also like the sellout left i'm saying left because there are people who are like richie torres who were you know 80 percent progressive at one point and now are moving more but richie torres is also also a big fan of the statehood party in, in uh puerto rico the statehood party being the trump party the party of the right wing the richie torres literally got elected because he was able to raise a ton of money he's he's um he's openly gay he raised a ton of money from the lgbtq community who supported him because they believed in him as they should as an ally right well guess what the statehood party in puerto rico has literally just gotten a bill passed that that or 
they blocked a bill banning conversion therapy. So what kind of lawmaker are you? If you are aligning with the anti-gay, anti-black, I mean, like literally it's like the white supremacy party in the, the resident commissioner of Puerto Rico is was the co-chair of Latinos for Trump. And she is the statehooder who co-signed this bill. And Richie Torres, half Puerto Rican, literally is now, I mean, like the centrist Democrats aren't even for the statehood party. Literally, like the, the, it's insane. Like how far, this is insane, but it's similar. It is similar because it's these weird wedge issues that most mainstream people don't really understand the nuance of. And it's like, it's like a pathway now it's like the new neoliberal is this because you can't get away with the old neoliberal. And so you see a lot of young lawmakers in Congress, Ruben Gallego, who I've known since I was like in college um, in Arizona. Ruben Gallego, a young democratic lawmaker, same thing, pro-statehood, pro-Israel. It's this flavor of, I'm, I'm progressive on like 80% 80 80 of the issues, but the 20% that I'm not are really, really, really bad. Well, I'm, so and this also reminds me of this this phenomenon of representational politics, where if you have someone from the right demographic, then okay, check that box. And we can see that that's never worked out. That's never worked out. Tokenism. Ultimately, never there's no proxy it. for integrity, for values, for competency, for ethics. Um, that stuff matters. Um, when I, the first person who I um, endorsed um, uh, after I won, was uh, Larry Krasner, who was running for district attorney, who has now become like the most progressive district attorney in the country. Um, I've worked very closely with his team on the government side. Very impressive uh, a team that he's assembled, um, great vision. But when he called me first, and I didn't really know him, he was actually a constituent, but I didn't know him. I said, I'm, I'm holding out for a progressive of color to run. And he's like, Okay, I mean, I can't help being, you know, white, but I hear you. And then when no one else ran, I gave him a, a you know, second look. I liked what he had to say, and I hoped that he would walk the talk, and I supported him. There are, you know, there are black folk, there are people of color who are going to say, this is a black city, and this, this, this is an important position for us, and not be the right person for the job, because their politics are jacked up. And, they, and, and so when we talk about rep, this is the difference between identity politics, right? Because that's really, a, that is a right-wing term like PC is, right? Yep. But representational means as long as the person looks the right way and fits the right demographic, that's enough. And that is actually a problem that liberal, the liberal establishment has that we have to be careful of. And the folks who take advantage of that are the ones we have to be careful of too. Last words, Iran. I mean, just, it's just heartbreaking, especially when you talk about the, the Puerto Rican statehood party, because it's almost, when you said that, it immediately made me think like you can get away with supporting weird things in foreign countries, and that's the way we treat Puerto Rico. And it's just sort of, even in New York City, it's like, it's sort of like, yeah, you know, you left the, you can kind of get a little weirder if you get out there a little farther. You like somebody weird in Ukraine, that's all right. Like, and it just feels like that in a really sad, sick way. And it just sort of, you know, we're all waiting for the documentary so that we can educate ourselves better. But like, I mean, my you documentary. know, <laughs> what do we want? You know what I mean? I These are rush, our brothers run. and sisters. These are human <laughs> beings we care about. And like, yeah. you know, I don't know what I'm supposed to want for them, you know, other than self-determination. Right. Self-determination is a great path. Just like self, I mean, that's, that's essentially it. Yeah. Uh, 
We'll wait for the documentary. I speaking of, I have to go <laughs> I'm do the it. I'm nudge. I'm like, how's the doc? <laughs> speaking of i have to go do it uh, in like 10 minutes uh meaning the documentary there's lots of documentary work here to do in puerto rico um but if you would like to contribute to our puerto rico documentary fund please let me know you can email me at the nomiki show at gmail.com because we're constantly looking for funders because uh it's a complicated issue and shocker the hedge funders don't want to contribute to our documentary <laughs> Also become a patron at patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. Also go to the committee shows, fans, fans.fm slash committee program. Committee. committee. Just, just committee. committee. If you You'll can spell committee, because I still can't. <laughs> double everything, you're good. You're there. That's it, the doubles. Thank you, Ren Chattery. Thank you, Rep Rab. Go check out the committee program Mondays, 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. on this channel um, and on Twitch and, of course, over at fans. And I've got some shout outs to do. All right, we had some comments. We had a comment from Alexandros2032. The elected progressives I follow on Twitter have already said this, and I still don't know what they're talking about, but at least they call Israel for what it is an apartheid state. I don't know what this was, but okay. Bob Carmody. Carmody, any editors out there? Your assignment is to set Arun's hand movements to a classical piece. Oh, Arun, did you hear that? Arun has a big Hogwarts professor vibe today, like Hondo said. Just, just, you have a Hogwarts vibe because you're wearing a robe. You do this. Yeah, I, well, I was, I was, it's from the segment on this anyway. It's the whole thing. You gotta watch, watch the, the show. Program, you'll get it. You'll yeah, get it. Yeah, yeah, Exactly. Yeah. Ken M, send some love. Ian Kinzel also send some love, says, we often talk about Santa, the Easter Bunny, and the Tooth Fairy as childhood myths. When can we finally add bipartisanship to that list? Agreed. All right, that's it. I think that's a great plan. We're going to talk about how bipartisanship is one of our childhood myths. Um, much love to everybody. Thanks to Brad. Thanks to, uh, of course, Dorsey, who is uh, manning the fort, right, manning everything right now. Um, we will see you tomorrow for Fem Friday right here on Twitch and YouTube. Thank you to all of our moderators for working those algorithms and getting all the trolls out on Twitch and YouTube. Uh, oh, wait, we have one more. I'm missing everything. Got a, oh, I missed it. I missed it. We have more shout outs. Sorry, guys. Quasi Spec says, I remember like two specific two specific times where Obama talked about being black in America and both times there was a lot of rasting. I don't know what that means. Prairie Fire Kowalski says, hi, thanks Prairie Fire Kowalski. And of course, oh, what? Hi, what? Thank you, Nomiki, I missed. Okay, there was a, it was a dramatic thing. Hi, what? Thank you, Nomiki, that's what he said. And then, oh no, that's a different, per I'm so confused guys. All right, there, thank you, Nomiki is a different person who sends some love, I think. Maybe, or maybe that was Prairie Fire Kowalski. Name is, oh, the name is what? <laughs> what <laughs> says, thank you, Miki. Thank you. What with an exclamation point. <laughs> thank you to everybody in the live chats and to Harvey K, Professor Harvey K. And of course, all of our moderators and the folks working the algorithms. We are so grateful to you on Twitch and YouTube. We will see you tomorrow. Same time, same place, Twitch and YouTube. And patrons, we are always grateful to you as well. Stay in solidarity.